Welcome to the Early Childhood Intervention Family Voices podcast. We acknowledge traditional owners of the lands on which the podcast is recorded and would like to pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. The Family Voices podcast is a series of conversations with families and professionals. We hope the podcast builds on families' knowledge, skills and confidence when navigating early childhood supports. The podcast is also an opportunity for families to share their individual stories as a family with a child with a disability or developmental delay. This podcast series is brought to you by Early Childhood Intervention Australia, Vic Taz. To learn more about the podcast and our organisation, please visit ekiavic.org.au. Hello, and you're with Simone Dudley. And today we have a very special guest. I'd like to welcome Falak Helwani, wife, mother of three, and research evaluation manager at Rare Voices. Welcome, Falak. Thank you so much, Simone. Thank you for inviting me to be a part of this podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. That's terrific. And I know we've had a bit of a chat. You have quite an incredible story to share. So how about we start with you introducing yourself and share a little bit about your family, where you work, where you live? Well, my name is Falak. Um, I'm mother to three children, Noah, who is 15, Emily is 12, and Yasin is 10. Um, Emily lives with several chronic health problems. The most significant is a rare complex heart defect. And Yasin lives with a rare autoinflammatory disease, which took about five years to diagnose. Uh, we live about 15 minutes south of Brisbane City. And as you mentioned, I work four days a week remotely from home for Rare Voices Australia, um, which is the national peak body for the close to 2 million Australians living with a rare disease. And I also run a very small freelance editing business on the side. It sounds like um, um, you're an incredibly busy person, but like that's an enormous amount on your plate. I'd love you to share a little bit about your early career story, pre-children's story. Yep. Um, so before my kids, I completed my PhD uh, towards the end of 2006 here at University of Queensland, and that was in the field of cell biology. Um, and I went on to do a postdoc role in a similar area, but with a heavier focus on stem cells and bone marrow transplants. Uh, I've always loved biological sciences, so um, through my career, I was very fortunate to be able to share some of the work that I did at various conferences in Australia and overseas. But then about three years into that role, um, I fell pregnant with Emily. So I remember toddling off to on a gloomy day to the, across the road from where I was working at the Queensland X-ray at the Mater Hospital for the 20-week morphology scan. And I think it was that moment that kind of changed our lives forever. A big moment for like what runs through your head now when you reflect back on that time? I still think about the sonographer who, who diagnosed Emily and I remember going back several times to find that sonographer just to thank her after I'd processed the whole thing um, and I never found her but I'm forever indebted to her for diagnosing that and, you know, it, it was huge. It was a lot to learn and even as um, somebody with a research background in biological research, just understanding what her heart defect meant was really tough because I was clouded by grief and all of the knowledge that I had kind of flew out the window. So 
and and it was a very rare defect that not many people knew a lot about and there was a lot of uncertainty around prognosis you know I was kind of convinced that maybe her, her heart defect is actually called hypoplastic left heart syndrome and I was very hopeful through the whole rest of my pregnancy that by some miracle, that part of her heart would grow and we wouldn't have to face it. But that wasn't the case. And one month before she made her entrance into the world, we had to leave Brisbane. So we flew to Melbourne with my three-year-old son and my mum, my amazing mum, who came and joined us for the whole time we were in Melbourne. And at the time, that was the only place that actually did those open heart surgeries um, that she required to sustain life. So uh, she was born at the Royal Women's and then within not even five minutes, whisked away to stabilise her and then taken in what looked like a spaceship in, in an emergency vehicle across to the Royal Children's Hospital. And, yeah, I was left in the maternity ward alone, surrounded by other mums with their babies, and, yeah, it was really tough. Um, but I was very fortunate to be surrounded by some beautiful nurses who recognised the stress I was under and made sure that I was well looked after and that I didn't have to be surrounded by other mums who had their healthy babies. That was probably the hardest part. And there was no convincing me after cesarean to even stay in the hospital. I, I just, I said, put me in a wheelchair, wheel me over there. I don't care. Just get me to my child. So a really tough time, but I'm forever indebted to the surgeons in Melbourne um, for doing that incredible surgery on a, a heart that's the size of a walnut. <laughs> so yeah, it, it was tough, but we were surrounded by family. We were sort of recruited into the Heart Kids community by default as well. So Heart Kids Australia are a fantastic organisation who really supported us as a family while we were down there. Mm, just a profoundly difficult time and to be so far away, um, no doubt you were just so grateful to have had your family with you at that time. What was the sort of time like just after the surgery for you and your family um, as Emily was in that post-operative recovery phase? Um, it was tough. We spent every single day in the hospital for that three months. So between her first open heart surgery at two days old and the second one at three months old, we were pretty much in the hospital. We also were very fortunate to have access to accommodation through an initiative called Max's Place. Mm. Um, so that was set up by a family just like ours who lost a child to exactly the same heart condition as Amelie and recognised a need to have that accommodation close by. Um, and so they basically bought several units in the apartment block opposite to the hospital and we were given that accommodation for our family as a stable home for that four or five months for free. It was just at the government subsidy, so we didn't have to mm. be out of pocket. So that was brilliant. And we got to take Emily home for a few weeks as well, so in hospital in the home, um, mm. which was lovely. A lot of babies like Emily don't get that opportunity, so we were blessed to have mm. had that and have, have her be stable enough to go across. And, you know, I'm imagining Noah, who would have been with you as well, and trying to sort of establish a routine for him as well. When you were living away from home, that would have been very challenging. Yeah, it was. Um, but like I said, um, my mother, my amazing mum, she came and stayed with us um, and 
took over that role and looked after him. And we all took turns, obviously, you know, as much as I didn't want to tear myself away from Amelie and not be in control of everything that was going on at the hospital, um, I made an effort to go and spend time with him and let somebody else take the reins for a day here and there. And for like thinking about your career at this point, which probably was very much shuffled in terms of your priorities, but probably no doubt quite confronting for you, given the amount of work that you had invested in your study and your career. Share how this was feeling for you at this time. Um, I think at that really acute time in Amelie's life, I wasn't thinking too much about what I had left behind. Mm-hmm. Um, and even afterwards, I didn't have time to think about it too much. And I, I made the decision to let it go at that 12-month mark. Um, so I had a research grant that I was awarded and I had to make the decision to let that go and just focus on Amelie. She, I just needed to do too much and I needed to be very focused. I was very sad at times when I had time to reflect on what I'd left behind. But, yeah, my focus was more on when's the next specialist appointment, um, what allied health does she need, what is the next thing that's going to happen because, as I learned along the way, it's never just a heart defect. So she has accumulated a number of chronic health conditions on top of her heart defect that need a lot of ongoing clinical and allied health support. And I guess your role then became really focused on how to put the right supports in place for Emily and your family. Was that easy when you did return home? Was that challenging for you? It was incredibly challenging. I think things have changed and things have gotten a lot better for families like us, which is just wonderful to see. But at the time, we spent a lot more time in the clinic than we did around other support systems. So. Nowadays, the clinic will connect you up to those other support systems. Back then, they didn't. There was no NDIS. And, you know, you don't know what you don't know, right? So I spent hours on Google and, you know, trying to find things that would help and going down those rabbit holes, trying to find those supports by myself. Um, Often, I would only learn of things very late. So Emily did miss out on certain early interventions that she could have accessed because I just didn't know that they were there. And the way that I found out about them was more through just sort of serendipitous meetings with some random social worker at the hospital during an, a lengthy admission, for example. Um, she would have had access to the early childhood development program through Department of Education a year earlier had I known about it. Mm. Um, but I was always told, you know, so many people fall through the cracks and at least you found it now and you know I saw the benefit as soon as we found those supports there was immediate benefit so grateful to have had access but really wish that it was earlier and that I knew these things earlier and even when it comes to sort of other services you know um, financial support and things I just wasn't aware of what I could access and because Amelie's heart condition is so rare when we tried to access things like the carer's allowance or a health care card We did that process multiple times and we just didn't get it accepted because nobody knew what it really was or what it entailed and what it required. And it wasn't until Emily developed epilepsy that a social worker at the hospital said, I know you don't want to and you're tired and you don't want to have to redo this process, but you have a box to tick now and I highly recommend you go and try again. Mm. And we got it. We got it because we had a box to tick. 
so yeah, we were a bit late to the piece. And I think it was just a bit unfortunate because at that time, and that's only 12 years ago, those sort of navigation supports and system navigation supports weren't around that I knew about. But I know through some of the work that I do now and through looking at families and their discussions in our support groups on Facebook, that there's a lot more support for these families now and a lot more help navigating the system. For like two things just pop into my mind at the moment, how even with the education that you have, the confidence that you have and this tenacious ability to research, it was still so challenging for you to navigate a pathway that was what you had hoped for in those early years. And secondly, that now looking back, you have some learning. So what would be some tips that you would share that, oh, if only I had known this back then? I think from the perspective of taking care of Amelie and the things that I would share would be trust your gut. Um, in my experience, the best clinicians are the ones that listen to the gut feelings of a parent. Um, and I, I was fortunate to learn this quite early because when Amelie was just three months old, we were about to get discharged into hospital in the home in Melbourne. And it was like one split second to the next. So I just noticed a change in her and she was a very small baby at the time. And I had this feeling that something wasn't right. And this amazing nurse walked into the room, took one look at my face and said, what's wrong? And I said, I feel like there's something's just not right. And we were packed. We were ready to go. We were ready to get discharged. And she said, if you think there's something wrong, there's something wrong. So within seconds, there was a medical emergency team and a whole room full of doctors and within minutes, we were whisked down back to ICU. So trust your gut. You know your child better than anyone. And I think that experience really cemented that for me. And it's given me a bit of strength to advocate for her in those clinical settings. Um, the other tip that I would have is to seek out Australian support groups. Um, in particular, Facebook communities were a huge comfort for me. Um, I found them a real safe place to share my frustrations and the things that I was going through and ask questions and know that I'll get a response really, really quickly and a good one at that. And also what we've done as well is we've felt the need to give back. So we've played an active role in supporting the Heart Kids Australia community through fundraisers and activities. Um, and I think there's, you know, that sense of belonging and giving back to a group that gave you so much is priceless. So I would say if, if you're a new parent, find those groups, be a part of them. There's nothing like them. Yeah. For like, thank you for sharing that. I think a couple of things have popped into my mind there. And I think let's start with the giving back and acknowledge that that must be a win-win for consumers accessing services, but also for you and your family to feel that you're helping to shape the resources that are available. So I also think that trust your gut is just so powerful for many parents. And I imagine sometimes when you're in this space where you have so many experts coming at you from every angle, that your confidence and your intuition might be challenged at times. But what you've just said is trust your gut. I mean, I'm an allied health practitioner and I have always felt that if there's a parent that's saying, I'm just not sure about this. You definitely need to listen. So I think trust your gut is probably really important for many families to really hear and believe. So thank you for sharing that. 
I know we've been focusing on Emily's story, but of course you have Yassine as well. Would you like to share a little bit about Yassine's development as well? Um, yeah, I'll share a bit about Yassine um, because he's actually got a rare condition as well that's completely separate from Emily's condition. Uh, so he lives with an auto-inflammatory disease. Um, it's ultra-rare. Um and I think that's why it took us such a long time to get diagnosed. Uh, his symptoms started in the first year of life and they were very similar to the symptoms of a child who just kept getting chronic infections. So it was very hard to diagnose. We went to emergency numerous times because he would just be in such excruciating pain and we didn't know why. Um, he would get fevers over 40 degrees for a week straight and they were just relentless. And it wasn't until I realised that these fevers were coming in a cyclic fashion that I, I started to record them and record his symptoms, record the dates and things. And we saw countless clinicians and, and specialists before we got him diagnosed and that was really challenging. I felt like maybe I was imagining things at times. There was just no validation until one day we were referred to a clinical geneticist and I would say that if you have a child who has a number of different issues going on early in life that are just not making sense, then really important to consider a rare disease and 80% of rare diseases are genetic. So I think that's why we were able to get a diagnosis because we were referred finally to that clinical geneticist. He just took one look at my, my log of symptoms and he just knew that we needed to be referred to a rheumatology team who made the official diagnosis in the end. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it was quite a tough journey. But the validation that I got when somebody looked at the notes that I'd taken and his bloods and, and, and his clinical signs and just it was one appointment with the rheumatologist and he, they just knew exactly what it was. Mm. That was just amazing to have that validation. You know, it was hard because I was hoping there was nothing wrong, but it was just more validating and just such a relief mm. to know that they had a diagnosis and there was actually something, nothing perfect to fix it, but there was something we could do to manage it. And he didn't have to live with these symptoms that were quite dangerous for a little body to go through. You know, having widespread inflammation in your body once a month is pretty dangerous for all your organs. So to, to be able to find that I could manage it was was wonderful. Mm, gosh, for like and so at that stage, Emily would have been two or three when Yassine was one and experiencing these symptoms. And of course, you had Noah a bit older, so you certainly had an incredibly busy and challenging period of time being a mother. Yes. <laughs> then you decided to think about your career. I wonder if you could share why returning to some meaningful work was really important to you when for many, you know, they might consider, wow, you're a busy mum, you've got a lot to do. Yeah, um, to be honest, I, I never really thought that I would be employable again, you know, 10 years as a carer and a full-time stay-at-home mum and so far removed from my academic experience and my professional experience, I really didn't think I was of much use, to be honest. Um, but like, I have a wonderful set of colleagues and friends who would always tell me that I was brave and that I still had something to give. And um, it was actually 
one of those colleagues who sent me the position description for the role at Rare Voices Australia, which I'm so fortunate to have now. Um, and I just remember reading it and thinking, oh my gosh, this is my my lived experience and my professional qualifications all rolled into one. And so I decided to apply for that. I didn't have any plan to go back to work, to be honest. Um, I spent a little bit of time trying to stay connected to academics through editing, academic writing and, and PhD theses and things like that before I, I saw the role at IVA. And in that year before I got the role at IVA, I started to set up that business a little bit more formally and get a little bit more professional training because I found myself with a little bit more time during school hours when the kids all were off at school. So, but yeah, then um, I got the role at RVA and I, it fits so well with our life. You know, I get to work remotely. I get to do some work that is of benefit to the sector that has given so much to my family. And the funny thing is I never really knew that rare disease sat under this collective umbrella. I knew that my children lived with two separate rare diseases, mm. but to know that there was this collective force that was advocating on behalf of all the 2 million Australians with such different rare diseases mm. was just wonderful. And to be able to contribute to that now in this way is so rewarding. So um, it sounds listening to you that you were just so compelled to apply for this role. Did you know that the timing was right after the interview or did you make the timing right because you were so compelled? Yeah, I think I just went with it. Yeah, I think I just yeah. made it work and uh, had a lot of support, you know, from my husband. And, and I think he saw that being able to work and build a little freelance business had been so good for my mental health and yeah. having that as my own, he was just fully supportive. And so we just, we made it work. Yeah, yeah. great. Could you share a little bit about Rare Voices? So I have the website open now and I can see there's an immense amount of work that goes on behind the scenes at Rare Voices. And for those that are listening that don't know anything about Rare Voices, maybe describe what the overall aim and function of Rare Voices is and, and maybe share a couple of projects that you've been involved in for luck. Sure. As I said, it's the national peak body for 2 million Australians living with a rare disease. And if you don't know what a peak body is, because I had to learn that, um, it's basically a widely accepted voice or representative of a group with a shared purpose. And they're usually consulted by government and not aligned with any political party. And so RVA really provides that strong unified voice to advocate for policy in the rare disease space for all the systems that work for rare disease. So not just health, but disability and all the other systems as well. And we have a really strong track record in advocacy for that broader rare disease reform across government departments and um, disability and also research. Um, we work in a non-disease specific way. So we kind of try to capture the challenges of the collective and make things better. Uh, we also work with over 100 rare disease organisations and on our website we have a directory of those rare disease organisations that people can go and tap into and, and find hopefully their rare disease organisation. But there are 7,000 rare diseases, so clearly we don't have an organisation for all of them. Um, 
some of the work that we are doing that might be useful to listeners, especially those that are supporting a child with a rare or undiagnosed disease. We have the RARE portal. So that is basically a national repository or an online hub of rare disease information that's built for the Australian context. And its user face is really not just families, but also clinicians, um, researchers and rare disease stakeholders, because we really want a central kind of validated and reliable source of information that even health professionals who we can't expect to know the ins and outs of over 7,000 rare diseases, they really need this. Um, and in terms of emergency management information for some of these rare diseases can be quite complex. So having that national resource is just really important. Um, so it's a work in progress. We have a very small team working on that, but hopefully it will be quite useful to people. And the other one that might be useful is the rare helpline. So we have a, a helpline, which is basically a service navigation support that aims to provide timely access and answer questions of people who are living with rare as well as complex chronic conditions. So yeah, if people are looking for those kinds of supports, there you can go to RVA's website or the Rare Portal website, which is rareportal.org.au. Thank you, Fleck, for explaining that. The portal would be a good first stop, I imagine, for investigating and understanding the landscape. But as you say, with so many rare diseases, there's a huge network that sits under the organisation that it looks like there's an incredible amount of lobbying that goes on. So congratulations to your team for such a lot of work. Would you like to give us an update on Emily and Yasin and where things are at? Sure. Um, so Yasin is in grade five and his condition is stable. His flares are managed by a medication, which is not on the PBS. It's, it's when we get through the hospital. Um, but we're very grateful to that. And um, so he'll be going on to high school last year in primary school. Uh, Emily is also doing quite well. Her life is still quite overrun by appointments and things. And she is planned to have a stent placed in one of the arteries quite close to her heart very soon. So I'm a bit nervous about that, but I'm told it's pretty easy. So hopefully it will go well. She is making a transition to high school. Um, so we've always been in the mainstream school system for primary. So um, we're moving on to the special school system. And that's a huge change for all of us. It's been quite a big decision to make. And I think um, one thing I've learned in advocating for Emily is that noise doesn't work and getting angry doesn't work and being more pragmatic about things and going to people with solutions instead of just identifying and showing them what the barriers are and the challenges are and saying go fix it for me if you can go to people with solutions if you can go to people with kindness you're always going to win the fierce advocacy work that you do is never stopping for lack and you're still learning through that experience how to set yourself and your advocacy work up for success. So like, I'd like to thank you so much for sharing your incredible story today. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Falak shares her remarkable personal story today as wife, mother to Emily, Yasin and Noah, as well as research and evaluation manager at Rare Voices Australia. 
Falak shared with us that two of her children experienced separate and unrelated rare diseases that have come with significant challenges as she has navigated the health, disability and education systems to support them. Falak with a PhD and experience as a research academic outlined just how challenging this journey was using her skills and energy and how she had to trust her gut to support speaking up and making decisions. Falak helps remind us of the importance of trusting our instincts as we continually build our capacity and how representing ourselves as part of the team is really important. Today, I particularly noticed how grateful Falak was throughout her journey. Did you hear her say that she went back to the hospital several times to find the sonographer to say thank you? Falak described being grateful to her family for support, feeling grateful to have access to accommodation in Melbourne so far from home, and feeling grateful to finally have found early childhood supports to support Emily. I wonder if you also noticed how grateful Falak was throughout her journey. Falak spoke of wanting to give back to communities that supported her and her family so much and described the feeling of how giving back creates a sense of belonging and purpose. So whether it be supporting Heart Kids Australia or her important work at Rare Voices Australia, her contribution has no doubt deepened because of her lived experience and those that she connects with in her roles will no doubt benefit greatly. And finally, a shout out to the Rare Voices Australia team for the work they do. They support advocacy, research and influence in Australia for rare diseases. Their website provides access to a reliable source of validated information and resources, including a helpline and a portal that's updated. Thank you, Falak, for sharing your story today. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Early Childhood Intervention Family Voices. Make sure you subscribe to your podcast app and feel free to leave a review to help us gain more understanding of what type of conversations are helpful to you. More information about this podcast can be found on ekiavic.org.au. Until next time, thank you for listening.